Good morning. I've got your Bible with you. Open up to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. It was about a month and a half ago that Congressman Ted Lieu was on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, they were d debating one of the bills dealing with um, youth sports and if folks who identify as being transgender, if they can compete in boys sports or girls sports or uh, debates along those lines. And Congressman Lou, I guess thinking he was going to kind of shame some of his colleagues and uh, try to move the, the bill along, stated this. He said, I just thought that I would recite for you what Jesus Christ said about homosexuality. And there was a pause, roughly about 30 seconds. He stood there, bowed his hand, put his head on his back, made a whole show of it, and then said, I yield back my time. The point being obvious, at least from his perspective, Congressman Lou stating that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. And because Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, well, those who claim to follow Jesus shouldn't make any sort of a big deal about it. After all, you claim to be a Jesus follower. And if Jesus never said anything about it, then why are you making such a big deal about it? What I want us to talk about for a few moments this morning, we want to look and see what Scripture teaches, if anything, about what Jesus said about homosexuality. I want you to think for, with me for just a few moments, about the implications of Congressman Lou's statement. I want to share with you everything that Jesus said about homosexuality. And he remained silent for 30 seconds and then said, I yield back my time. Uh, one of the implications of his statement is that Christians are betraying their faith and opposing homosexual activity. That because Jesus never addressed it, and we claim to be Jesus followers, if we're going to make that a, a, an issue, that we're doing it in spite of Jesus, and therefore we are being inconsistent in our practice and in our application. Along with that, the implication of his statement is that Jesus never addressed homosexuality. Right? That is the main thrust of what he said. I, I want to share with you everything that Jesus said about homosexuality. And then he's silent for 30 seconds. Another implication of his statement is that only the words of Jesus are authoritative to direct a Christian's life. Notice he, he didn't bring up what Paul might have said, what Peter might have said, what any of the other New Testament writers might have said, certainly nothing about what the Old Testament might have said, only Jesus. Perhaps the mistaken view that only the red letters in our Bibles are important. And we'll talk about that implication in a few moments. And then this implication is there in Congressman Lou's statement as well, that in order to address any topic, Jesus must speak on that topic with absolute specificity. That there's no dealing with an issue in broad terms, in generic terms, in categorical terms. If you're going to speak against something, the implication is you have to be absolutely specific on that singular point. I want us for the few minutes we have this morning to kind of break this down and to see whether or not this, this meets the test of logic and whether or not this meets the test of Scripture. So let's, let's start here. Generalities or specifics? 
So must Jesus speak with absolute specificity in order to address any topic? Is Jesus capable of addressing a topic by addressing the category to which it belongs? Or does he have to speak with absolute specificity on any issue in order to address it? Well, if this is the case, did Jesus ever speak about anything beyond the context of first century Palestine? I mean, everything he said was in that context. And if we're saying he has to speak with absolute specificity, is there really anything he says that relates to society today? Jesus never said a word about the Internet, did he? So is it just free ground for us to roam around on and do whatever we will? There's a lot of things that Jesus never spoke with absolute specificity on. Jesus never spoke with absolute specificity on sexual assault, did he? But every one of us know Jesus would oppose that, and rightly so. It's wrong. But how do we come to that conclusion? Because of some of the broad statements that Jesus made that reflect his will and his teaching on those uh, subcategories, on those issues that fall underneath those categories. Think about it. Do, do we or Congress apply this mes- method of reasoning anywhere else? You know what Congressman Ted Lieu has never done in his life? He's never said the people of Lufkin, Texas are valuable people to the State of the Union. So because he's never said that, does that mean Ted Lieu hates you? Well, I would certainly hope not, and I wouldn't assume to speak for him that he does. I don't think he would just say, I hate the people of Lufkin, Texas. Might say, I hate the Lufkin, Texas water, but, you know, that's another issue. But we don't apply that method of reasoning anywhere else, do we? So why would we apply it here? You know what? There's no law that says Tyler Sam cannot drive whatever speed he deems reasonable and appropriate on US 59. But I have done that on occasion, and I've gotten pulled over there around Dyball in Huntington, right? None of you have ever experienced that, I'm sure. But it doesn't work. I can't go to the officer and I can't go to the judge. Well, judge, you know, I'm, I'm flipping through, through, through the manual here and there's nothing that says Tyler Sams can't choose his speed. But we understand that's addressed categorically, don't we? It's addressed broadly. So does Jesus then ever address the issue of homosexuality on a broad scale? I would submit to you that he does. Look here in Matthew chapter 15. In verse 19, and, and we will do a little bit more, more work on this passage as we go forward, but just start with me here, and we'll leave a little bit of this hanging for just a moment. Matthew chapter 15, in verse 15, Peter said to Jesus, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart? And those defile the man. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, sexual immorality, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Like I said, we're going to come back to that principle in just a moment, but hold on to that word fornications there, or sexual immorality, depending on how your Bible may translate that. 
That's a, that's a generic term, isn't it? That's not specifically referencing any particular sexual act. It's a broad one. We're going to have to do a little bit of work with that word. But just tuck that aside and remember that here is Jesus dealing with a sin in a, in a general way rather than in a specific way. Put a peg there. We're coming back to it. Think about this, another implication in Congressman Liu's statement. The implication in his statement was that the only thing that matters is what Jesus expressly said. And that if Jesus didn't expressly say it, if he did not uniquely address it, then those who claim to be Christ followers are inconsistent for making that a point of emphasis, for warning about behavior that Jesus himself didn't specifically warn about. Well, is that consistent? Are Jesus' words alone the standard for a Christian's life? Look with me to John chapter 16. I think we can deal with this from from this context. John chapter 16. This context stretches all the way back, John 16 does, all the way back to John chapter 13 where we have uh, the, the institution, the observance of the Lord's Supper for the first time. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And then from there going forward into chapters 16 and 17, all the way through, it's our same audience. It's the 12. Judas is going to leave at one point, making it the 11. But the audience is the apostles. These are the ones to whom Jesus is speaking. And as you look at John chapter 16 and verse 12, for instance, He says to the apostles, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That's no surprise, is it? They're in a state of emotional turmoil. The time has come. It's going to be just an hour or two down the road. Jesus is going to be betrayed in the garden. That's going to set off all of the events leading to the trial, leading to the flogging, leading to the crucifixion. So, of course, they're not in a state to receive further teaching from Jesus at this time and be able to remember it accurately and share it. But what does Jesus say there in verse 12? I've got many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Well, if we're talking about implications, the implication of Jesus' statement here is what? He's got more things to share with them. But this moment, at this time, in John 16 and verse 12, was not the appropriate time for that. So what? Next verse, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, is coming, this goes back into chapter 14 and chapter 15, where Jesus has repeatedly talked about the Holy Spirit coming to the apostles. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So by the Holy Spirit, the apostles would be guided into and reveal all truth. Jesus says, verse 12, I have more to say to you, but you can't handle it right now. But that more is going to be revealed to you, verse 13, by the Holy Spirit, who will reveal to you and guide you in all truth. But verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and will disclose it to you. Focus on this right here. 
when the apostles are being guided by the Holy Spirit into all truth, when they are carrying on the message of Christ in the absence of Christ because he has died and raised and ascended back to the Father, whose message are they sharing? What does Jesus say? That Holy Spirit who is guiding them into all truth, verse 14, will take of mine and declare it to you. This isn't the Holy Spirit's message in opposition to Jesus' message. This is the Holy Spirit taking the message of Christ and continuing it on through these apostles. That is to say then, is it just the red letters that are important? The answer is no. Because the rest of the New Testament is equally the message of Jesus Christ. And so while Jesus' words are important, and don't don't get me wrong, they are desperately important. But we need to understand just what exactly is embraced in the idea of the words of Jesus. Those words inspired by the Holy Spirit are just as important. Chapter 16 and verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine, Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So it's not, biblically speaking, it's not the red letters alone that are important. We need to be looking for the entirety of the will of Jesus that is revealed both in red letters and in black letters. Let's deal with another implication from Congressman Lou. And it's this, that Jesus never addressed the issue of homosexuality. I'm going to submit to you, though, that Jesus did. And that's taking us back to our Matthew 15 passage, where Jesus used two words, adultery and fornication or sexual immorality. I would submit to you that Jesus addresses homosexual activity when he condemns the practice in Matthew 15 of sexual immorality. Why why is that? I want you to come with me next to last book in your Bible. Come with me to the small book of Jude. And I want you to look with me at Jude 7. Jude 7. And the story that is referenced here in Jude 7 is a story that takes us all the way back to the beginning of our Old Testament. It's the story of Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah and the visitors, we we know that they're angels because we have the rest of the story. The angels who visit Sodom and Gomorrah who are taken in and protected by Lot Whereas the men of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah implored Lot that he would bring out those men to them so that they could know them carnally, is the language there in Genesis 19. We would recognize that as seeking to engage in homosexual activity. But if you look here at Jude 7, go back with me. Let's get the context here in verse 5. 
Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they engaged in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality, and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. You've got three different stories referenced here. The one we want to focus on there is verse 7. Where Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls back to the sinful behavior that was there in Sodom and Gomorrah and calls it what? He doesn't call it homosexuality, does he? What does he call it? Sexual immorality. It is essentially the same Greek word that you see in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. The only difference is in Jude 7, uh, you have an intensifier before the, the, the word porneia. Uh, it's, it's the uh, prefix ek, ek. The New American Standard Bible, while I, I could make an argument for how it sounds, I think to the modern mind and the modern tongue, it, it might give a bit of a misconception. When he calls it gross immorality, right there in verse 7, gross immorality. When we hear gross, we think of things like disgusting or something like that, right? Uh, marinated onions are gross, right? That's not his point here. He, he's not making a point about whether or not this is disgusting or not. That, that's not the point at all. But rather it is talking about how far people had strayed from God's original pattern. Uh, in the Septuagint, this, uh, this word is used over and over again to describe uh, not only sexual sin, but sexual sin that was often accompanied by idolatry, a straying far away from God and his original principles. And that seems to be the idea here behind this word ekporneia in Jude 7. It's not simply the idea of engaging in sexual immorality, although that is part of it. It's a testament to how far these people had fallen. Because to engage in this practice, one needs to abandon two fundamental biblical principles. Number one, that God created the sexual relationship for man and woman male and female. But then we recognize as Christians, God has been even more explicit than that. That it's not just that God created the sexual relationship for man and woman. This is the point of Romans chapter 1. God created the sexual relationship for whom? Husband and wife. When you go back and read Romans 1 sometime and you talk about that which is against nature, what is against God's original design, Fundamentally, it's not men with men and women with women. Fundamentally, it's that we have strayed from God's original pattern, which was husband and wife, sexual activity within the confines of marriage. But back to, to our point at the moment with, with Congressman Lou's statement here, what is, 
what do we see Jesus doing? He addresses the sinfulness and condemns sexual immorality, which includes Jude 7, homosexual activity. It is not limited to homosexual activity, but it includes homosexual activity. Jesus did speak about homosexual activity and condemned it when he condemned sexual immorality. So Jesus addressed homosexual activity when he taught on marriage in the gospel accounts. Remember Matthew 19 and verse 6 where he talks about sexual activity within the marriage? A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, be joined to his wife, and the two shall what? Become one flesh. And that cycle continues itself, and that cycle continues itself by a process of sexual activity. But it is there with God's blessings within the confines of marriage. And marriage that is biblically defined and ordained and created by God as a union between one man and one woman. So does Jesus address homosexual activity? The answer is he does. He does in Matthew 15 when he condemns sexual immorality as a category which includes homosexual activity. And Jesus condemns homosexual activity when he teaches on the sexual relationship being a part of the marriage union, which is limited to a man and a woman. So then the implication of Congressman Lou's statement is that we're somehow being consistent as Christ followers when we oppose homosexual activity. And, and let me be the first to say I have seen some people, and I'm sure you have too, seen some people who in their quest to be Christ followers have acted in very, very unchristlike ways. We need to admit that, and we need to call that kind of behavior out when we see it. It doesn't do any good for the kingdom. But is it inconsistent to teach against homosexual activity, to stand in opposition against homosexual activity? And of course the answer is no, because Jesus opposes all sexual activity that is outside of the marriage relationship. This isn't just some unique focus on homosexual conduct. Homosexual activity falls under a broader category, as we've said all along, of sexual immorality that includes any kind of sexual activity that is outside of the marriage relationship. Any sexual activity outside the context marriage is wrong, is sinful. That includes but is not limited to homosexual activity. So Jesus forbids sexual immorality, which includes but is not limited to homosexual activity. And to make the point that we made earlier about red letters and black letters, Christ's will, which is revealed by the Holy Spirit, Rejects homosexual activity. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Jesus taught on it. Jesus taught on it clearly. So did the Apostle Paul, who was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words we read earlier 
1 Corinthians chapter 2. But look here with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are consistent in their portrayal of homosexual activity as being contrary to the will of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look with me here at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Of course, he goes on to say, we'll inherit the kingdom of God in verse 10. That is, these are all practices, these are all activities that fall outside of the will and the realm and the approval of God. And so, no, we're not inconsistent as Christ followers when we look at a behavior, when we look at activity that is sinful and stand against it. But we've got to stand against it in a manner that is consistent with who Jesus is and with the spirit and the heart that Jesus possessed when he was here on the earth. Remember we referenced John chapter 8 earlier in our studies together? Jesus and that woman who was caught in the act of adultery in the very act. How did he respond to her? There was a lot of condemnation that could have taken place. There was some very blunt language that could have been used. But do you remember how he responded to her? Woman, where are those accusers of yours? They've gone away. They're not here. What did Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. Jesus speaking there of the heart of repentance. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. A lot of things Jesus could have said. A lot of things you or I might have said in that moment. But Jesus spoke mercifully. The, the issue had been addressed. But Jesus spoke with mercy and compassion. And I think as we wrap up, that's something we need to remember. We kind of put a bow on this this morning. Think about this. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Fundamentally, we as Christians can betray our Savior, and we do that when we don't treat other people the way we ourselves would want to be treated. To hear some people talk about it, it's almost as if homosexual activity is, is the worst sin one could ever think of. I just can't buy into that perspective from a biblical perspective. I don't, I don't see God categorizing these sins as this one's really, really, really bad and this one's, well, not so bad. To run afoul of God's will is to run afoul of God's will. To fail to live up to God's expectation is to fail to live up to God's expectation. And one of God's expectations for us expressed through his son, and by the way, this is red letters for what it's worth, is that we would treat other people the way we ourselves want to be treated. All right, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, we teach it to our kids. One of the first lessons we try to instill within our children. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way 
You want them to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. Do unto others, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Act towards other people the way you want them to act towards them. But what did Jesus say there in verse 12? In what? In everything. In everything. When I have to talk to my friends who are living in sin, when we have to have those uncomfortable conversations, when my friends have to talk to me about living in sin, practicing sin, we need to remember this principle. This principle just doesn't magically disappear at moments when it's convenient for us. Even in the midst of confrontation, we need to remember to treat other people the way that we ourselves want to be treated. To treat each other the way that Jesus would have us treat each other. Think about this. That we need to respond compassionately and lovingly to those who struggle with sin while at the same time not compromising Jesus' message. Look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, you've got, you've got the apostle Paul coming into the city of Athens. Walking around, he sees all of these different idols erected, right? And he sees one that is erected to the unknown God. He says, that's the God I want to tell you about. I want to tell you about this God that you're worshiping in ignorance, this God that, that you're unaware of, but you've kind of made sure just in case you've left one of the gods out, here's, here's the altar that's going to get to him, to the unknown God. This is the God I want to talk to you about, verse 23. The God who made the heavens and the earth, all that's in them. And after talking to them for some time about that God, he says down here in chapter 17 and verse 30, therefore, my nose is trying to decide whether it needs to sneeze or not. That was a weird feeling. Okay, we're past that. Chapter 17 and verse 30, therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. But I want you to look at how Paul began this discussion with the Athenians. In verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. He finds something praiseworthy about these people. You talk about a polytheistic culture, you talk about an idolatrous culture, it's there in Athens. And yet Paul finds something good to say about them. I worry what I might have sounded like, what some of us might have sounded like, had we rolled up to Athens in the same scenario. What are you guys doing? Who are all these altars to? And an altar to the unknown God? How weak is that? It's, oh, we've got to make sure we have this guy covered just in case we missed one. I mean, that's something we would expect from a child. What is your problem? That's not how he responded, is it? In fact, that would have been a pretty detrimental response, wouldn't it? Instead, he finds something praiseworthy. You're a very religious people. I can appreciate that. Let me tell you a little bit more about this unknown God. 
and what he wants. And here's what he wants. He wants everyone everywhere to repent and come to him. There's a message that responds compassionately and lovingly to those who are in sin without compromising the truth. That's the kind of approach we need to take. And that's probably going to mean taking the conversation offline. That probably means getting off of Twitter to have the conversation, getting off Facebook to have the conversation, and picking up the phone, or, or heaven forbid, going and sitting down at somebody's house and having the conversation. Reminding them that I love you. I want the best for you. And here's what God says. Let's end on this concluding thought. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Go back there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read verse 9, but I want us to read verse 10 this time. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10. Because the last thing we need to remember is that there's hope for everyone. And whether it's homosexual activity or some other sin that I struggle with, Reality is I don't have to be a slave to that sin. That sin doesn't have to rule over me. That sin doesn't have to define me. And that sin doesn't have to condemn me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11. What does he say to the Christians who comprised the church at Corinth? Don't you ever think that there's some sin in your life that is beyond the power of the blood of Christ to Verse 11, such were some of you. Homosexuals, adulterers, sexually immoral, idolaters, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Such were some of you. Oh, but that important word there, were. Such were some of you. This is what you were. You're not that anymore. Because you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. If our message doesn't embrace the reality that there's hope for everyone, our message isn't full, our message isn't complete, and our message isn't the message of Jesus. We've got to remember that whatever sin might be bound up in my life, there's forgiveness available for it. There's victory over it. There's freedom from those shackles. And that freedom and that forgiveness is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for your attention this morning. I appreciate it.